This is Terror House Radio with Matt Forney and Bryden Proctor. Yeah, welcome to a Terror House Radio episode number 46. I'm Matt Forney, your charming and loquacious host, and the founder and editor-in-chief of Terror House Press. My co-host and producer, Bryden Proctor, will not be joining us this episode. He's off being gay or something. But we're going to have a good show anyway, because my guest for this program is T.J. Martinell. He is an author, journalist, and most importantly, he is the author of Terror House's next book, The Pilgrim's Digress, which will be out this Friday, Christmas Day. The Pilgrim's Digress is a post-dystopian novel, novella. That's how TJ describes it. It is imagining what could be a potential future for the United States, given the uh, the path that this country is currently on. It's a very good book. We actually serialized it earlier in the year, uh, if you want to check that out. But soon enough, you will be able to own a physical copy in your hands. I'll be talking to TJ about that and about other things. And I also want to inform you that, as I said, the book, The Pilgrim's Digress, will be on sale on Christmas Day. It will be uh, 40% off, I believe. We will also be running a sale on all of our other books. So you can go crazy. You can go crazy with Terror House. Everything will be on sale. I know you kids are going to be getting a... Santa's going to be leaving you some Amazon gift cards and Barnes & Noble gift cards in your in your stocking. And you can spend them at Terror House Press with our upcoming discounts. But enough of that. we got TJ Martinell coming right up. Stay tuned. TJ, welcome to Terror House Radio, and thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. Now, I imagine some of our... You've been a prolific contributor to Terror House for a magazine for some time now. This is uh, the Pilgrim's Digress is the first book of yours that uh, you've published, and you have a and you and you have a bit of a public profile yourself with uh, your own site, and you've published other books before. But um, for the people in the audience who don't know who you are, could you just kind of get the Cliff's Notes version of uh, yourself, your work, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm I'm an author, writer, and reporter from originally from the Seattle area. Uh, I now live in the Cascade Mountains um, outside of a, a tourist town, uh, a Bavarian-themed tourist town. And I've written a variety of books on exploring the issue of just dystopian themes. I've also written a bunch of short stories for Terror House that deals with the dystopian genre. And that that exploration is what ultimately led me to writing this uh, this novella, The Pilgrim's Digress. Yeah, yeah. Your work, your work generally focuses on... Uh potential potential futures for the uh, United States um, and for I guess the Western world in general uh, in fact before we began serializing the Pilgrim's Digress you wrote an opinion piece for Terror House called uh, the dystopian uh, genre is dead which you kind of uh, give yeah. your opinion on why uh, why dystopia as we generally think of it is kind of kind of obsolete in our modern era yeah I was I was always trying to come up with ideas for uh, how could it get any worse? It kind of reminds me of that line since it's Christmas. Uh, I have to throw out a Christmas line from Christmas Vacation where the the wife, Ellen, says, you know, Clark, everybody needs to leave before it gets any worse. And he just says, how can it get any worse? We're in the thresholds of hell. Uh, and that's kind of how I think that's kind of how a lot of people feel now in the year 2020, uh, where you, you just wonder people tend to think of worst case scenarios as being uh, like death. To tending to be the worst thing that could happen to you. And what I've been watching and observing is that I, I begin to understand why a lot of peoples in earlier times preferred death to surrender or being subjugated because the 
humiliation and disgrace and indignity that occurs afterwards, the degradation of just your humanity is is worse than death in some ways. Not to get too <laughs> depressing on that, but I've just seen what people are doing to themselves now and what they're allowing and tolerating without actually resisting. And that's where I finally realized that the the direction we're going as a society is going to be much different than, the, you know, like you watch Red Dawn or some film that is about a takeover where it's very direct and explicit. And instead, it's more of this weird psychologically dysfunctional uh, society. But also, I was trying to think of ways that it could get worse. And the problem is, is that all the the context for anything that you can think of is already there. Anything bad you can think of. And that's well, that's why I, I enjoy retweeting so, a lot of my short stories, uh, the dystopian ones, because they, inevitably something similar to what I described happens. There was the short story, um, Woke Capital, that is about you know so, your apps or your technology basically controlling you inside your own home, um, which is becoming even more relevant now that people are staying at home because of all this government lockdown stuff. Yeah, I, I, I saw I saw a comment on Twitter to this effect the other day, in that uh, you know the lockdowns basically destroying uh, public life, unfortunately, everyone uh, right. in ho- uh, to their homes has handed a lot of power uh, to tech companies. I mean, they already had a lot of power, but they have even more power. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll include a link to that short story um, that you mentioned, Dosville Capital, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but you imagine a future in which uh, people who've um, – you know, their, their smart appliances have overheard them saying things that are, uh, you know, un PC to put it, yeah. put it mildly. Uh, suddenly find themselves not able to get into their homes. Uh, suddenly find themselves not able to access their fridges and worse things can happen. Right. You know, it's funny that the years ago, I, I think it was eight or seven years ago, I was working on my, one of my first novels that I published, The Stringers, and that concerns, uh, government censorship and a new prohibition era, except instead of alcohol, it's information that's the contraband. And I envisioned a the censorship being carried out by the federal government through a federal agency, kind of similar to the TSA and, and stuff like that. And I, I seeing it play out, what I've realized is what I got, I got a lot of things right with that book in terms of what I was anticipating. What I didn't anticipate was that government would subcontract all that stuff to the private sector, to the quasi private sector. What we, what people, some people have the audacity to claim are private companies, right? Like the idea that Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these other big tech companies are just purely the result of a, of a free market economy yeah, rather ignore, than ignoring, you know, ignoring the, all the money they got from DARPA <laughs> and the like. Yeah, as if as if the government has no interest in having millions of people gathered onto four big sites with with all this information that they can mine. I mean, what's the point of having the NS? What's the point of having the NSA's database when they can just go to to, to plant a few people in there? But that was where I, I was starting to realize that our our future is going to probably resemble more. There's going to be more censorship, and there's going to be more uh, authoritarianism. But the government's not going to do it explicitly by its itself. It's just going to direct private companies. It's 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 going to be a censorship driven through the by government through private companies, and that's why they want these big companies in and a handful of companies that they can control, rather than the, the somebody was I was having a debate with somebody about the whole section two hundred and thirty, and ironically enough, this was I believe a libertarian uh, who's 
suddenly believes that the federal government is needed to keep the internet open. But uh, they said, oh, we're going to go back to the days where there's all these different chat forums and stuff. like." And I was like, yeah, I'm sure the deep state will be devastated. <laughs> oh, God, so. no. Uh, a million chat programs, a million forums, decentralizing the internet, anything but I, that. I know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's so fun. This is, well, that was part actually, it's, since we're talking about that, that's what actually got me thinking a little bit about the the basis for the pilgrim's digress was this this whole concept of uh how how can i put it, it there's two things is that big uh hyper individualism kind of requires a big government but also a lot of weird behaviors and fetishes and uh lifestyles have to be pushed by big government because if if allowed to just this is where a lot of these kind of fringe radical you know, live and let live people, they have this dichotomy where they want to be, they want, they don't want to be judged by anybody. They want to be able to do whatever they want. Well, the problem is, is that if you're a freak in a society, you know, the fear of being ostracized, the fear of being uh, shunned by people for, for how you behave and what you do. And so they have to turn ultimately to the government to make sure that nobody is allowed to discriminate against them in any way. And that, it, you know, we're not just talking about, we're not talking about the law we're talking about oh you can't exclude them from your organizations so whenever people are trying to and this is something that the pilgrims digress tries to look at is what happens when a lifestyle that was once banned becomes legalized then it becomes normalized then it becomes uh accepted then it becomes required and mandatory so you know does this this raises a lot of uncomfortable questions um with regarding government but also you know this whole idea that what goes on around you outside your own property doesn't affect you there's some people who have that attitude of well if it's not on my property it's not my it's not my problem well that's not that's clearly not how it works as as people are finding out when they have mobs showing up in their neighborhoods yeah yeah when you're when you're told that you have to bake the fucking cake you bake it like that's that's the point where it's no longer a private property <laughs> issue yeah yeah well yeah this is well so i guess that that raises the really interesting issue of that the pilgrims digress looks at is one of the things that a big misconception that we have in american history is this idea of separation of church and state it's not found in the constitution it was in reference to a letter that it was referenced in a letter from thomas jefferson to i believe a baptist church and it was he was he was trying to reassure them that the state was going to stay out of their affairs but yet that's been turned into this idea that that religious content can't be a part of public life or politics at all and yet if you under if people understand their constitution is written the first amendment le keeps the federal government out of state affairs but states could have their own, i'm not saying they should but states could have their own churches they used to have uh censorship boards they would censor films certain films couldn't be shown even local cities had censorship boards uh, you couldn't have certain movies being shown so this stuff has been it would not be unprecedented if it were to occur again it has happened before in american history but the whole concept of separation church and state it raises a very interesting question that i was asking is at what point does the state resemble and just become a church in all but name and the the concepts you this is what's so effective about what people are doing i would say secular progressives is that they don't ever call what the, their religion they don't call religion their gods they don't call gods their sacraments all the tenets of their faith they use other words to describe it it's very orwellian and it's very effective and once people understand that you start to realize that a lot of what we consider to be secular 
society is really just a the, it's the it's very theocratic actually and the, the example of that with that is you know you got to bake the cake you you cannot um resist our our religious beliefs it's, you have to you we will force yeah it's flannery o'connor's church of christ without christ yeah <laughs> right and so it, you know when people will i mean and i've watched how certain things were not were have been prohibited i mean in you're at the same age as me i believe and We've watched as a lot of things that used to be prohibited are now being legalized, or they've been long. They've been legalized um, in recent years, and they've gone from being, they've gotten to the point where you can't even speak, you can't even suggest that we go back to ten years ago on that issue, yeah. on on so many things where, yeah, it, it's it, it's very, um, I'd say, what, what throws a lot of people off also is they don't understand, they, they when they think of religion, they think of. A kind of a traditional religion like Islam or Judaism or Christianity, but people who think of themselves as not being religious are actually very religious. They're de- I would say that, it, for example, people say that the Pacific Northwest is a very uh, um, non it's one of the most secular places in the country. I disagree. I would say it's one of the most religious places in the country. It's just not Christian. <laughs> it's a it's just a different religion. We just we don't call it a religion. It's it's wokeism. It's washing the feet. It's washing the feet of black people. It's a it's hiring a street czar to uh, shake down uh, to, yeah. <laughs> to shake down the city government. It's it's uh, it's climate change. Yo, yeah. I mean, you're. This is what uh, kind of I, I got a little frustrated. Is uh, apparently I, I think it was out of the Seattle school district or the Seattle city government, but they were teaching um, the white people that they. That they were engaging in spiritual violence against, uh, uh, you know, non non white people, and I thought, how perfect would it? I, if only that had happened, or I'd heard about that before I'd written the Pilgrim's Digress. That would have been a perfect thing to use in this book, where denying the divinity of Christ is an act of spiritual violence against the believers, right? <laughs> so they're like I was saying, they're using they're using spiritual language to push their their beliefs. I mean, these the, 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 these issues like. The, the concept of anti-racism, the con- all these different ideas, climate change, they're couched in religious terms and they have religious connotations. And a telltale sign of a religious belief is the apocalyptic warning if you don't do what they say, right? It, with climate change, oh, we've only got 10 years to save the planet. And 15 years later, we've only got 10 years to save the planet. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's like, a never-ending it's like cycle. David, of- it's like David Bowie's song. We've got five years. That's all we've got. right and with uh with just i would i would recommend that people look at what these these people the words they use they talk about cleansing and healing and you know what these words that they're going to take on even more and more of a religious connotation and and overtly as i think in the next couple of years and so when I was working on the Pilgrim's Digress, I was trying to, I just realized when I realized the dystopian genre is dead, we're living in the dystopia today. This was in 2019 when I, when I wrote this, when I was working on this book, I was coming up with the idea. Uh, incidentally, so it's a book about bounty hunters and I just watched for the first time Cowboy Bebop. So I wanted, which, you know, people think, well, that's, <laughs> that has nothing to do with this book really, but I wanted to write a story about bounty hunters. And the first thing, of course, as a writer is you got to make sure you, whatever your first thought is about writing a story, it's going to be cliche and it will have already been done. Um, and so you need to just spend some time throwing 
cutting out all the, or rewriting or changing any of the stuff that you originally thought of. So I thought, okay, I want it to be about a, a, a group of bounty hunters. Um, I'm not going to do it in space because of obvious, you know, relation to Cowboy Bebop. I don't really want to do it in the past. I want to do it in the future, but what does the future look like? And I can't make it a dystopia because we're already there. So I thought of it, what would a post dystopian society look like? Like what, is, what's the kind of society will come about after this, our period of time is over because we, the, the consequences and the full effects and the reaction to what's going on today are, are not, is not going to be felt for probably 20 years. I mean, we'll probably be in our fifties or sixties when the, the, the full reaction does, or, or maybe who knows that the things can change so quickly, especially with the, uh, the way that communication and information is exchanged now. But uh, I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of what what kind of a society would what would a reaction to today's behavior be like, and that was kind of that was the basis for for this for this novel. Yeah, you're 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 imagining. Uh, you, 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 I don't want to say post apocalyptic. Uh, there are, you know, this isn't like some kind of Fallout fan fiction or something. But you're imagining what uh, a society uh, that comes after the society that uh, you know we live in would would be look like. And your depiction of it is basically a uh, basically a theo- theocracy. Um, you know, the provisional government is. Uh, Basically, the church, like you know, the church and the state, are one and the same, as you alluded to earlier. And the main character, Amos Cavendish, is a uh, he's a bounty hunter, a, a so-called Puritan, whose main job is to bring in criminals who are violating decency laws. The prologue of the uh, of the uh, of the of the novella uh, has Cavendish performing a bust on a guy who's you know ha- who owns a sex bot. Right. You know, it's funny. I was. I was I was looking at the the cover that that uh, Matt did for the for the book, and I was like, "Wow, this is a provocative cover." It, like, I got a very visceral reaction to it, like, and then I realized I, I was thinking about it. And go, well, you know, I kind of wrote that type of a novel. I didn't really think about it at first for whatever reason. I think I was focusing more on um, different aspects of the book. I use sex bots actually as a uh, as a uh, I guess a, a a a point of discussion about public morality. I was reading a, a, an article about the ethics around that kind of stuff. Like, at what point do you ban these things? And I kept thinking of like the libertarian argument. Well, well as long as you know it's not they're not aggressing against you, as if there's not going to be consequences of allowing that kind of stuff going on. Like, if your next door neighbor is that type of person, would you want them around? And I, what's interesting is also I didn't, I, I have not read a whole lot about Cromwell's. Uh, uh, term as as lord protector of england like that time period i hadn't done any type of research in that and it really wasn't this is not a book about puritanism it's not a book about the puritan it's not even a book about theology uh it's more of a, a it examines political philosophy more than anything else but apparently this is this is kind of what cromwell's men were doing during that time period they were doing busts on um, on people like for celebrating christmas or they were shutting down uh, theaters and that kind of stuff so I thought it was it was interesting because I was trying to come up with a word to describe these bounty hunters, like the slang term. Um, and incidentally, that's actually Puritans didn't call themselves Puritans. That was a, a derogatory term that somehow I don't know how, but it ended up being used um, 
uh, it, for some time period as a, in a, I guess, oh. neutral way. Well, it, seem, it seems to be a but running theme of, of oh, that particular. It seems to be a running theme of that particular branch of Christianity. Like Calvinists don't call themselves Calvinists; they call themselves the Reformed Church. Right, right. Yeah, people. There's always <clears throat> there's always what people call themselves, and then there's what other people call them. And the the other thing that was interesting about this, the, I was trying to think of what I was just about to say about uh, the the. Oh, the other thing that inspired me to write this book is I, I've never read the, the novel The Handmaid's Tale, but and I, I've you're never not, watched you're not missing anything. Well, but here's the thing: I've read, I know, and I know the culture from whence that comes because the Pacific Northwest culture is very, uh, they're they are it is very Puritan, like in terms of like the stereotypical Puritanism. We we are a very Puritan culture. It's just not Puritan theology; it's secular theology. But the 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 archetype of of what they talk about, and so I want to write a book that actually said, you know, they're they're always depicting this this horror of a theocracy where Christianity is running things and people are under the thumb of the church and it's very religious. And I said, I kind of thought, you know, maybe I should depict that society, but that actually has a moral case for why it is that way. Like, how do you get to this point? This is, it's, it's like trying to understand uh, times in political history. For example, uh, you know, for various reasons, people are discussing Caesar crossing the Rebucon. And I get really frustrated when people talk about it without having any discussion about the events that preceded that. For example, the, the decline of the Roman Republic, efforts to have it reformed, um, the, 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 the the Punic Wars, all these other things that led up to the moment when he decided to cross that river. And so people tend to blame the the effects or the symptoms as the cause for what happens, rather than saying it's it is the product of somebody else's actions, and which means that somebody else is responsible um, for that. Or it's also if you want to avoid a theocracy, this is you don't do this stuff. And I think my hope is people read this book and say, "Yeah, we're our society today is creating the moral case for a theocracy, whether it's a good idea or not." Uh, if I if I was a theocrat, I would have all the intellectual and and moral ammunition that I would need. Yeah, basically, what you're saying is like stuff like uh, the society that you depict in the Pilgrim's Digress that doesn't arise out of a vacuum. People suddenly don't, don't decide to, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna burn all, we're gonna burn all the porn, we're gonna burn books, um, you know, we're gonna sh- we're gonna we're gonna confiscate all the sex bots. Um, you you sort of trace the uh, the societal steps that led to that uh, let led to that uh, kind of society emerging. Right. Well, you know what's scary is how many examples of uh, I, one of the th- one of the things I'm afraid of is that people are going to read this book and think it was written this year in response to stu- some of the stuff. Like, for example, there was that church that was doing the whole uh, transgender thing with the kids, like it was some past or whatever, and they converted it into. The- I can't remember what it was, but it was like that's literally something right out of my book that that they are describing as a past historical event. And so it's just been kind of scary to watch a lot of the stuff that that I've been looking at maybe not so much with the sex bot thing and it's not trying to be a literal you know interpret not speculative history or something like that but you you look at just how how degraded a society can get to where people feel ordinary people and i think that that's the other thing is that amos is not a a fanatic he's not a a zealot he's he's not one of those hyper religious people he's just a i i envisioned him as being a man who was driven to do what he did out of 
the fact that he, there was no other moral alternative. Yeah, he was, um, he was basic. He, he was he was basically backed into a corner. Right, and that's you know it hints at it. I wanted this book to be very understated so that people could fill in the blanks for a bunch of stuff. But he's very much mm-hmm. a person who was live and let. He was probably a person who was live and let live, and then realized that he was going to have to be involved with what was going on around it. Like you had a choice: you could either be involved, or you could die, or you could pick up a gun and shoot. And there was that one line I uh, he's describing his friend Ronnie and saying, you know, we were all like that. We were the nice guys. And then one day we snapped and nobody ever saw it coming. And th- th- that's something else that a warning that I would throw out there to people is that, you know, there's all this talk now. You see, you know, big mouths on, on social media or whatever uh, about whatever. If there's going to be any kind of conflict, it's going to be like the guys who are going to start trouble. The, the, there's the saying that the most dangerous person in the bar you'll ever meet is the quiet one. It's yeah. the one just sit, sitting there sipping his drink. He's the guy who's got PTSD. He's the guy who's got a lot of anger and he's very quiet. The, the loud mouse, the guy who are big, loud drunks, uh, they're not to worry about. It. It's the guy who's really quiet. He's the one that you should be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, and you, you, you basically kind of, you know, uh, the book, the book is, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it paints a world, obviously, but it's not like some hugely world building type thing. You, you just kind of, you just kind of set a scene, yeah. but a lot of it is the Kale involves, uh, you know, Amos's, uh, interactions with the, uh, the people he's tasked with hunting down and the, you know, his superiors and his family and whatnot. Um, and you get that depiction, right. particularly with his interactions with, uh, Jedediah, who is a, uh, much younger and uh, more fanatical, uh, more fanatical individual um, who doesn't remember the turbulent era. The turbulent era being the uh, right. the 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 era preceding this one in uh, the book, um, an era an era of uh, social decay and uh, unrest. Right, right, and the that was I was trying to create thinking. Okay, what type of characters are you going to have after this time period, and. Also, what type of attitude would someone have after fighting in this kind of era for so long is you'd have men who are just done. They don't really want to be involved anymore because even if you survive that kind of a conflict that you just, you don't want to ever talk about it. And so Amos is one of those who is still driven. I saw him as being this reluctant leader that people might see in, in various films or whatever, but He's, he's the guy who doesn't really want to lead. He just wants to go home, but he's, his capacities and abilities as a leader are so great that he can't walk away because everyone else around. And then he sees around him the fact that there is no one else who's capable of doing what he's doing. And, and people also, other people notice that as well. So they want him to be involved with, with what the work they're going on. But, the the problem, like you were saying, is that a lot of them were not alive during this era, so they don't have that that same attitude. For them, it's just a historical period. It's kind of like with with kids today who were born after nine. It finally occurred to me that there are people in their late teens who were don't remember going to an airport without being patted down. Like they don't know what it's like to live in a pre nine eleven. There there world. are people there are people in so, their early twenties who don't remember that. Right, right. And so, like, wh- how does that shape your attitude to have never known something or never know? I mean, I, I was born right, right before the Berlin Wall fell and the, and the, you know, the Cold War was coming to an end. So I really don't remember the Cold War. And there's an entire generation now that was born well after that. So they don't even know that there was, they, they don't remember a time when East and West Germany existed. There was East and West Berlin. Uh, there was a Cold War going on with Russia that was, you know, really get ramping up in the 80s. 
So they, you know, people who were alive during that era. And another example I'll give is the internet. I don't really like people using the like the millennial age group. I think that there's there's a separate generation for the simple fact that there were some of us who remember the pre-internet era. Like I remember uh, living in a house with no internet. I remember when the internet was only uh, a dial-up on on your phone uh, your phone line and and the, how big of a deal DSL was. I remember not you know you you had a landline but you didn't have a cell phone. And then there was before that you know after that you have a cell phone but all it does is text or you do calls or text. The 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 combination of the internet and social media and the smartphone have completely changed so much uh, of our social interactions. And I would, I would actually chance to say that this lockdown would not be tolerated if it weren't for social media oh, and the internet, like all this. They could, there's no way they could have get away with this because people can still interact with each other online and do all this kind of stuff. But uh, other than that, I don't think people would put up with it. Just for, but, but, but we're coping. We're, we're, <laughs> I mean, not to be too cynical about it, but people are, are just choosing to tolerate it for the most part because they're being given uh, an opiate. They're being given their soma, you know, go on social media, go, go talk. As long as you can communicate with a human being in some form go, or you can go do watch, remote. go watch yeah. Netflix, go play video games. You know, in 20 years, we're gonna yeah, have, exactly. in 20 years or hell, maybe 10 years, we're going to have an entire generation who won't remember what it was like before you had to put a mask on to go to the grocery store. Oh, I don't, <laughs> I really don't. I'm trying to be optimistic in the sense that I don't want things Yeah, here. Here's this is this is what's funny about our dystopia today. It's very effeminate and passive aggressive and aesthetically like it's it's the the tyranny of a psychologically broken people because I wouldn't mind necessarily being ruled by a strongman if I, if I had to choose right like if these were my own choices if I was in a pizza place and you know you have to choose one of the pizzas there I would prefer to be ruled by a strongman who's very ad- uh, very explicit about the fact that I'm doing this because I can I'd rather be ruled by a Genghis Khan type character who's just conquering for the sake of conquering. He's subjugating for the sake of subjugating. And if you comply, he'll, he won't, you know, destroy you, but let's not pretend like this patronizing here, put on this, put this cloth on your face. It's for your own safety. You know, we're doing this because we care about you. We, we care about I, I, it. Just, it's, it's so nauseating to, to see. And uh, it's, I just find it interesting that there's a lot of other um, diseases. We'll, we'll leave it at that. That are far more deadly and harmful. And yet, uh, when people spread that disease, they're considered martyrs. Uh, yet, when I don't wear a mask, I'm treated like you know, uh, not. I haven't really had any bad encounters myself, but you know, not wearing a mask is almost like. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to give an analogy from a prior era, but it's well, it's almost it's, like it's a religious hysteria. Right, but it's not even aesthetically attractive. I mean, that's part of the problem is there's nothing aesthetically attractive about wearing a mask over your face. It, it's it's almost like this sign of submission. Well, yeah. In, I mean, in a very strange you, way. You can see that present in everything. Uh, you remember uh, there was an incident like uh, – it was like two or three or four months ago. Um, you remember the spate of like uh, you know BLM protests where they were pulling down statues? There was the one case in Bristol oh, yeah. in the yeah. UK where they pulled down the statue of a slave owner and they briefly replaced it with a, a statue of a, one of the protesters. And it was the ugliest thing imaginable. It's like – 
it, it literally looked like a racist caricature of a black woman. Like the, whoever, whoever, whoever made it, like made her lips like comically huge. It was, it was, it, it was, it was insulting, right. and it was just aesthetic. It was just aesthetically unappealing. That's the kind of thing that this <laughs> that this tyranny produces deliberate deliberate ugliness, which is designed to uh, designed to despair to. I mean, I've lived in uh, other than Eastern Europe for about close God close to four years, um, and in many places, you know, particularly in. Uh, Places like uh, Armenia uh, and uh, the former Yugoslavia, you can still find uh, evidence of uh, artworks created by the uh, communist regimes there. Now, everyone knows about like the commie block apartments; those are ugly, obviously. But you'll get statues right. and and uh, monuments that are that are very beautiful. Uh, uh, when I was in Gyumri, right. Armenia. Um, I went to the Mother Armenia statue, which is uh, you know a statue that was built during the Soviet era, um, and it has uh, uh, in front of it. There's the uh, this this was a common motif in uh, Soviet memorials. The uh, the twelve hero cities of uh, the Great Patriotic War, World War Two, Moscow, Kiev, etc. In these nice right. little uh, to- stone tablets with the stars on them, and then you get up to the statue and. The statue is not in in great shape because uh, it's not being well maintained. But it was it's very beautiful aesthetically. You know, it's, you know, I'm not defending communism right. here, but um, that was coming from an an, an attitude of oh, we want to build something better. We want to we want to we want to create beauty for the future and inspire people. Uh, what's being propagated today is not inspiring. It's designed to demoralize. It's designed to to break your spirit. Right. Yeah, that's what I find. I, yeah, we're not we're not defending communism here. We're saying how like, if communists can create good art, then what's our <laughs> what's our excuse? But yeah, I think that the one of the differences also is that the communists were starting out with a country that wasn't wealthy, and you know there was obviously the, the nobility and aristocracy. But for the average person, my guess is that their lives were not that great, and so there was this promise of building a better world that didn't exist. And that was going to, you know, motivate them uh, on some level. And whereas today, what we have is people who are in an incredibly decadent uh, material. Like we have, we have overconsumption. Like our poor people are fat. They are not. They're not skinny. And so, what do you do when you're trying to change that? You well, you're in this dichotomy of where you're claiming you want to make the world a better place, but you destroy everything. And it's the only way for. The only way for people to understand what's going on in the, this this country today is to realize that there is pr- profound psychological um, and mentally ill people uh, in it, the, the, there's there's to the extent that it's I'd say a huge chunk of the population or at least they've accepted it because when you have people turning you you, you notice patterns like you say huh all these cities are basically becoming more and more ugly and they're being destroyed. And they're turning into ghettos and they're turning into like with the whole defund the police thing, um, regardless of how people feel about law enforcement, calling for defunding the police is not the signal you want to send if you want to reduce crime in your city. Oh, yeah. But but for some reason, this is like, but for some reason, people like, I'm just, I'm thinking, do they not understand that you get past step like step one, defund the police? What does step two look like? What, what, What do you, what do you think? is going to happen once once that occurs and the, the the fact yeah they create ugly just ugly art like everything which is which is great for me as a writer because i my competition is far fewer than they would otherwise be i mean if i was a writer in the 1920s and 30s i'd be having to compete with actually good writers um in creating literary art but the 
yeah, I think that was another thing that was interesting. It's not uh, so much, I'd say, not a direct correlation, but one of the issues that I think is a strain, perhaps from from Protestant or or Puritanism in some ways, is that just because of the way that the, the Reformation went down and the way that things happened, there is this tendency to fear beauty for the sake of beauty's sake. I think that that's always been uh, perhaps among more extreme um, issues, but just look at Protestant church churches. Like they tend to be ugly. They tend to not be attractive. Whereas if you look at uh, Catholic churches, they tend, they tend to be very beautiful or at least aesthetically attractive. Whereas uh, Protestant churches are typically a box with a little like add, add a steeple on top type thing. Um, and I think that that's rented, there, rented there, office this, space. <laughs> uh, no joke. I, I once attended a church that was, that had relocated to a former corporate headquarters <laughs> that like they, they'd converted. And, you know, I was just, I, and then, and then I've been in, you know, these cathedrals in, in medieval, in Europe, like in England and France and all that kind of stuff. And just, that the experience is totally different, but I was talking about that with some uh, Protestant friends, and there's like this innate reaction to like the idea of having a beautiful church. They're like, "Well, it's not about that." I was like, "I, yeah, it kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, do you want an ugly house? Like, this, this is not. I don't think that the, it's a huge part of what's going on today necessarily. And I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I also wrote that essay, uh, you know, why Protestants struggle with writing good literature is uh which people can read at terror house magazine as well because that was something i was ironically writing while i was writing this book which is about a theocracy uh in in the future but i think that going back to the whole mentally ill thing that's the only way to explain what's going on is just people are mentally ill and they're terrified of beauty they're terrified of beauty because it, it it's a reflection of the fact that they feel ugly inside like they're just miserable just you know ugly people who are ugly inside can only create ugliness. They they're not capable of creating um, great art because we're also a society that's victim driven. Um, the greater, the bigger the victim you are, the the more like that's the ideal. So uh, being beautiful and being attractive is uh, almost a crime to an extent. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's very we're we're, we're entering into Harrison Bergeron territory. Um, one yeah. example that I can <laughs> one example that I can think of is. Uh, you, you know that uh, you know there's the common complaint uh, leveled against the the modeling industry that like all these super thin models you know um, is f- unhealthy beauty standards on women and it's driving uh, anorexia and such like that. Uh, I don't have the site on me, but there was a uh, there was a study uh, years ago that showed that. Uh, as obesity increases in a society, uh, its local modeling industry the the uh, the 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 models get thinner and thinner. Like if you want to help, like, like you know. Uh, models in uh, the U.S. were of a, a, a more normal size uh, back when the population itself was at a more normal size. But as the average American moved towards obesity, right. uh, models moved in the opposite direction as a sort of a weird, twisted, uh, twisted parody. Yeah, that and um, you know, I, I've always, I've never quite known what to make of the modeling industry because my question is always, who? Are, it's like with the fashion industry. Yeah, and I see what what comes out of that. Uh, just the stuff that they put out is so. Uh, <laughs> it's it, like the the stuff that they. The, oh, who was that one guy? Uh, he was in the movie Dunkirk or whatever, uh, but he was dressed up like a woman or something like that. I haven't, they, they seen, I haven't, I haven't seen Dunkirk, so oh, yeah, 
I gotcha. I think Candace Owens made a comment about it. Like, you know, what's, what's happening to men or something like that. And that triggered the whole, the whole mob uh, to go after that. But I've always felt like these people are just always trying to deconstruct and destroy what's actually beautiful. And, and it's obviously not a bare bone, bare, bare, nothing but bone, you know, skinny model, but it's also not, uh, you know, a, a woman who, who's the size of Moby Dick. Like we, like we, we, we can find some, some, something in between that, but it's, I think what it is, is they're always exploring, at least today, they're exploring the extremes because we've, we've, uh, we've criminalized the, the norm, like being normal, being healthy, being sane is now be, it's almost like it's a sin. It's a sin to be okay. It's a sin to actually be, be doing, behaving in a healthy manner because it means that you're not a victim. And if you're not a victim, it means you're part of the institutional oppression and, you know, fill in the blank, whatever systemic, you know, uh, you know, you're accused of being privileged or something like that. And so once people understand that, it's actually pretty, it's really effective and just throwing it back and like, yeah, I'm not mentally ill like you are. I'm not insane. Or, you know, if you want to use more terms from, from the Pilgrim's Digress, just say, I don't subscribe to your, your superstitions. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't subscribe to your religion <laughs> and, and seeing how that read. Yeah. I, oh, it, it, it's worked a couple. Th- it's, it, it's interesting to get a reaction out of people when you, you know, someone says, you know, what's your thoughts on this? It's like, yeah, I don't subscribe to pagan beliefs and just it's, it's the last thing that they expect to hear and they've probably never heard it before. And so now, now you're putting it on them to have to explain why they're not a pagan <laughs> or something like that. Cause they, it also, they, a lot of these people see themselves as like a moral, there are, there are a lot of similarities with the Soviets with these people, but I would say the Soviets would not have tolerated this kind of behavior. Uh, I just don't think their society could have afforded it. We're able to, the United States, because of its status as the world's reserve currency and its ability to apparently print as much money as we need, right? Whenever we need a problem, we just go to the printers. Uh, we're able to subsidize lifestyles that other countries like the Soviet Union just couldn't, couldn't deal with. Like, I'm guessing that the, the sexual morality in the Soviet times was more traditional than, than what's going on right now. Well, there was there America. was a, there was a brief period at the beginning of the Russian revolutions where the Bolsheviks were encouraging uh, wife swapping and whatnot, but that came to an end under yeah. under Stalin pretty rapidly. There was that famous incident where like a like a a British uh, gay communist wrote to Stalin asking if he would be accepted in uh, the communist utopia. Stal- <laughs> St- Stalin didn't reply. He just wrote on the letter, "An idiot and a degenerate." <laughs> Yeah, when you ever get called a degenerate by a communist, it's pretty bad. Yeah, um, I mean, that, I mean, and the the communists actually associated homosexuality with fascism, you know, like, and and there is a and there is actually a you know undercurrent of that, particularly in you know in Nazi Germany, you know, Ernst Röhm was a homosexual, you know, much of the uh, was it the SS or the SA that he headed? Um, the organization he headed was uh, was mainly violent homosexuals, um, and in fact, there was oh, a yeah. there, there was a yeah. Soviet official uh, who actually said, uh, I forget who it was. He said, if you want to end fascism, kill every homosexual. You find i don't endorse that but that's what he said i didn't right. say it. he did right. <laughs> well right it's uh, it, it, i just think that that's interesting that we you know people this is where i get a really frustrated with i'd say the the baby boomer conservatives who are always talking about fighting socialism and fighting communism and all that kind of stuff and they they are they only focus on the economics 
And which, by the way, it's like, guys, uh, and then in the next breath, they start talking about how we need, we need to fund social security, which I'm like, wait, wait, or Medicaid or Medicare. It's like, yeah, we've already passed that point where the government is engaging in socialist behavior, but they don't really focus on the fact that we're already past, like the, there's the warning, like we can't let this happen. We can't let it happen. It's like, dude, it already happened. Like we're, we have far surpassed what, uh, do we have greater freedoms than the Soviet people? Sure. On some stuff, but and were their lives not, not that great? I'm not saying we should go. We should swap. I'm, I'm saying that in a lot of ways, our lives are are much more. Um, I'd say devoid. Not. I don't know. I didn't live in the Soviet era. I would probably want to talk to somebody before you know making a, a full on statement on that. But I think that they're at least when it comes to uh, the family, they were more traditional than we are today. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. And that's one of the things that this book looks at is like the, you know, he's Amos spends a lot of time with his family or he's talking to his family because ultimately that's like if you, if the family is broken, your society is going to collapse at some point. And that's why I think one of the reasons the Soviet Union didn't collapse, you know, they tried to do a lot of crazy stuff. And it, it, when they first took over, I mean, they stopped using money. Um, they, which, yeah, brilliant idea. That's up there with defunding the police um, in terms of stupidity. And, but then they realized that you can't have that. You, you they, they were, so they were basically doing like a kind of not a LARPing of communism, but they were, they were trying to have it both ways, but th- they couldn't have it. They, they could not have the kind of brokenness that's in American society today and function. We're able to do this because we're able to take out debt and, and we're able to, you know, we've got credit cards, we've got uh, all these different debt bubbles that are building up and, the subsidizing lifestyles that are not, I mean, there was that, I just tweeted about that last night about the, the, the prison convict, like the pedophile that had gotten a sex change operation paid for by taxpayers or something like that. Like, yeah, I'm sure that's something that the Soviets would have been spending their money on <laughs> instead of something else. I, I it just, it's kind of like, that goes back to what I was saying. Like the dystopian genre is dead. Cause like how much more ridiculous can it possibly get than, than what's going on today? Like how are we, how, Either things are going to get better in in fifteen to twenty years, and my hope is that in the next upcoming decade will will be a, a turn in a different direction. But I've also learned uh, to hold keep my expectations uh, at a minimum as far as that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you you think you, you think you could turn around at some point, but the problem is, like, I don't think there is a bottom in some cases. You know, like they hit bottom and then they just start tunneling through on the way to China. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's kind of that is if there's anything i've learned in the last couple of years is that when you think people can't get any more um undignified in, in or or they can't endure any more humiliation and disgrace they just keep they they double down and the the toll that takes on a human being psychologically is is you know it, it, you can see it in their eyes they're just they're 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 like a they're like uh, – so when some sled dogs get picked on by the others or get like, you know, dominated or whatever, they 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 get broken. Where basically they they do what they're told. And you can kind of tell that in those type of – those type of sled dogs. I've seen one of those before. And it's the same with people. Here's kind of the, the interesting thing going – you know, with regards to a theocracy is that means that people are also not going to be resistant to – some radical, like if a strong, this is why I think a, a strong man is inevitable at some point in America, uh, America's history before, you know, it goes the way of the Roman empire is that people 
aren't going to be able to resist. Because if they can't resist this right now, they're not going to be able to resist a guy who comes in and just starts uh, ordering things, basically running things himself. I mean, if people can't, if people are like, oh, that's, you know, that's a violation of the Constitution. Well, what are you doing to, you're not defending it now. And people, some people who are, uh, I'd say, not indifferent, but they're just apathetic about the, the just degeneracy that's going on in society today would turn around and, and freak out over theocracy if someone were to impose it. I'd say, look, if you don't have the moral courage to stand up to what's happening right now, then you're not going to do anything when a guy is violently imposing a theocracy or you're going to be dead because you it, it's just going to be you. So that that's where I'm not saying that a theocracy is an inevitable in American society, but I see that the the environment for one is being created um, I, I do think the interesting thing is, though, if that it were to ever happen, it would not be from the people leading it would not be in the existing church today, uh, either Catholic or Protestant. They, they're going to be. Uh, and I think for anyone who's read Dalrock uh, or any of the other uh, religious focused uh, blogs or websites, uh, the, the church just doesn't have men with that kind of moral courage because let's be honest if they were if they existed they would be doing trying that already um or, yeah. or something along those lines it's going to be somebody who is a convert um who is who's outside the church and isn't uh, affected by i'd say just the moral weakness that that goes on i mean it's churches are more or less uh a play it's a it's a night the culture of nice or the cult of nice they're not they're not no, not to be so cynical about it, but that's just the, the reality of what it is, is they, they don't raise men to be strong and courageous or to be bold. They, they raise them to be nice people, right? Uh, you know, pay your, pay your taxes, uh, pat the dog and, and happy wife, happy life type of thing. Like they're not, this is not, they're not David, they're not David or, or, or Joshua or anything like that. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's uh, you know, I, I used to read those blogs as well. There's not there's not a whole lot of moral fortitude left in any of the uh, of the churches. Yeah, when uh, the, the it's it's kind of sad. I've I've had discussions with people. Well, not only that, but how out this goes go, goes back to the boomer issue is how out of touch some of the older generation is with what's going on today because they live in their little their little isolated bubbles. They don't. A lot of them are just. For them, it's it's kind of like with uh, an, an example is like Gen Xers who still think that we live in the world of footloose, right? They think that the religious people are the church is running things and and being you know listening to to rock and roll and talking about premarital sex is somehow a, a risque rebellious thing to do in the year twenty twenty, um, and, and so they're just they're not so they have this disconnect of they they think of themselves a rebel yet everyone else is doing what they're doing. <laughs> And so the same disc, a different kind of disconnect is with boomers where they're, they, they don't understand any of the societal changes. So they're still under this impression that um, most people are getting married at a young age or want to get married at a young age. Like the, the whole marital issue in our generation, uh, it's, <laughs> if we want to talk about uh, depressing topics, uh, it, you know, that, that that's an, another one of those, but they, another part of that is, just talking about social trends from the eighties back when, when people, you know, men and women were getting married at like 21 or 22 or something like that. Talking about that today with people it, within church culture or religious culture makes people very uncomfortable. And I'm thinking if, if talking about social norms from 1980 is considered taboo, then we're like, you got, 
I don't know what to tell you guys. Like you're, you, you, there's really, there's no point in having a further discussion because if, if that's too uh, beyond the pale to, to have a conversation about, and it, it, it you, you're just left speechless saying, okay, this is not going to get solved by, by these people. This is not, a, this is not a, wherever, if there's a solution, they will not have it. That's just the, the unpleasant reality. Yeah. I mean, we're already, we're already in a position where, uh, you know, uh, like, Say, say, criticizing gay marriage is beyond the pale. I mean, that's what happened to what's-his-face, Brendan Ike. He had the same opinion on gay marriage that a Barack Obama did in 2008, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the mental illness that's really going on is this idea – like, the pa- like there's no past. So uh, I, the, one, of the, one, of, one of the things I noticed with people is that they were – they've been showing videos of, of these Democrats talking in the 90s about stuff that – Today, a hardcore right, you would think they were a hardcore right winger. And uh, if you look at some of the politics, like, would I don't, I, it'd be, it's hard to compare, but with President Trump, he's portrayed as like this far hard right figure. And, but if you look at his politics, a lot of it is, would have been considered left of Bill Clinton in the 1990s on some issues, not all issues, but on some of these issues. And, to the left of Barack Obama, but that's, it, it's all the question of context in today's society. We've changed so much as a society. If you aren't keeping up, you're automatically going to end up on the right. I mean, that's the, it, it's almost like you've got to paddle upstream or you're going to get swept downstream over to the right. This is where I, it's interesting to watch a lot of older um, or more, I'd say moderate Democrats who are being, being treated like they're right wingers and they're bewildered because they're thinking I haven't changed my views at all. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, that is the problem. You aren't changing your views. You, you're not, you're not like you're part of an, or you're part of a movement or a party or an organization or, or a, a belief system that is constantly changing its views. There are no concrete views. And that, that's kind of the same, uh, I think, self-destruction that occurred initially with the communists. I mean, most of those Bolsheviks, the, the original Bolsheviks, they all ended up dead uh, executed. They were, they were, you know, exiled to Siberia. Very few of the original Bolsheviks that overthrew the czar, you know, not the czar, uh, overthrew the, 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 the replacement government, uh, actually ended up ruling the country. They got, they got consumed by their own ideology where they were, they were, or they were admitting to and confessing during these, these show trials. So it's, it's the same dynamic is kind of going on there where that's why I see it also as being on top of creating ugly art. It's also a self-destructive ideology and not sustainable. Something's going to eventually replace it. What it's going to look like. I don't know. That's going to be one of the interesting things to watch for. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this feeling like I can't, I can't describe it that like something, something big is about to happen. Like, you know, you can, you can dismiss this as wishful thinking or whatever, but I have just had this overwhelming feeling that like what's going on now is not going to last. Like it may, it may last, I don't know, another year, another three years, another five years, maybe 10 years, but there's just something. What, what's going on with, uh, not just the social things, but also the medical dictatorship. It's not sustainable. No, yeah, I I don't see it as sustainable either. I just it's a question of when it's going to end. And what really frustrates me is that uh, you know I'm in my early 30s. I don't want to be dealing with this stuff in my early 40s. I want if it's going to end, I want it to get over with so we can actually start start moving on and onto something else. Because this the the narrative like there's a very clear narrative of the world that they're trying to create, but it's a world that collapses the moment people stop it. People that they blame for it stop enabling it. Like the moment they leave, this is 
this is kind of the borderline personality disorder type behavior that we see where guys like you and me are blamed for all the world's ills but when we leave they freak out because we're not we're not there to be we're not there for them to blame us for what's going on and we're not going to be enabling their behavior because you need to have at the at, at some point you need to have people who go to work who pay their taxes who don't break laws who aren't sucking out of the system but when when all you have are just parasites who want to be taken care of by government or by or are eating up social um social services or whatever it is that everything just falls apart you you can't and that's why inevitably that you have to prevent people from leaving that's why they had to build the berlin walls because so many people were leaving the uh, the city and and that part of the country that it was going to f- collapse at some point oh i mean we're already we're already we're already in that process we're like uh you know with all the border <laughs> closures and whatnot and uh, you know if you've been following what's been going on with uh i don't know if you follow nomad capitalists but he's been tracking like all the wealth taxes and stuff that you know are being proposed in places like california and even arizona is going to put in a wealth tax so it's like they're going to make it more difficult uh, for you to renounce your citizenship to leave the country to put your assets somewhere else uh if you have money they're going to take it uh you know you know, they're trying to make it as difficult as possible to escape, if not with literal walls, then with uh, male metaphorical walls. Yeah, I, I haven't really been following that, but it's it's going to be. Uh, it's I've I've decided that you know I'm not a uh, I'm not like a super rich wealthy guy, obviously, but I'm also not poor. I'm going to be sticking around my area for various reasons, so I won't won't be leaving. Um, because I think part of the problem is uh, one you can leave economic migration or economic immigration always has problems you can you know i'm seeing this with a lot of people who've moved to america uh they moved here for economic economic opportunities but there's a huge identity crisis that occurs when you leave an area where your ancestors have been for a thousand years two thousand years or hundreds of years and you're now in a completely foreign area and you have to essentially give up a lot of that that identity to be part of the culture and you're you're also a you know in so many ways you're a Johnny come lately <laughs> to you know America's already founded and created and it you know it's his it's 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 basis as a country has already been formed so you're coming in after the fact it's like showing up to a party it's like showing up to a a, a, a construction like you're doing a construction job at someone's house and you're you show up for the party afterwards or something like that <laughs> when you actually weren't run around and so I w- I wouldn't be leaving my you know, going off to some southeastern Asian country um, with with my money for for that reason, but I can understand why some other people will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hell, you know, a lot of people are moving. Uh, you know, plus it brings problems. I mean, Texas. Everyone talks about Texas is going to go blue. I don't think that's going to happen. But you're going to see a lot of uh, idiot Californians. Mo- Californians are the plague. You know, they're moving to I- Idaho. They're moving to <laughs> they're moving to Arizona. They're moving to Nevada. They're moving to Texas, and they're bringing their stupid regressive, uh, stupid regressive beliefs with them. Yeah, yeah. It, this is. This is what I uh, another part of the disconnect that goes on is people. Uh, the areas that people talk about, people are not. I don't. I don't know what the, the migration is from West Virginia, but people are not fleeing West Virginia, and they're not fleeing all these other states where supposedly, you know, like, not to not to break it down in a binary, but the red states. People don't flee the red states to go to a blue state. No, nobody's fleeing to California. Nobody's fleeing to New York, uh, and people are not 
the, so the, there's this disconnect between the, the, the ideas and the pulses that they have in place and their actual behavior. You know, if, if this was so great, why did you leave? And it's the same thing with like, the, you know, frankly, these economic immigrants who come to this country and then they end up just bad mouthing our, our, our people, our, our heritage, our heroes, our, our history. And I'm like, why are you here? Oh, I like, really, I, it reminds I, me that I remember the first time that happened to me. This is when I was hitchhiking uh, years ago and I was in upstate New York and I stayed at a, uh, I stayed, I stayed at a hotel where the manager was from New Zealand and like all she did was complain about the weather. She complained about the taxes. She complained about the healthcare. And I was thinking to myself, okay, then why are, why are you here? Why don't you go back to New Zealand if it's so wonderful? And then I, well, I, yeah, I, I, I told this, I, I told this to an Australian friend of mine and he was basically like, yeah, she's not in New Zealand because New Zealand's a shithole. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the thing is I, I don't listen to what people say anymore. I watch what they do. So when people say, Reveal all this horrible stuff about. Yeah, exactly. You can say whatever you want, uh, but if you aren't leaving, then this, it's clear that you don't actually believe that. And if you think some area is so great, then why why did you leave there? You know, it, it, it's. I mean, we're getting a huge chunk of people from Seattle moving to my area. Actually, it's. Uh, I think it's because of the the tourist town. A lot of a lot of these, I think, wealthier people who can afford a second home or they work in the tech world so they can work remotely or something like that but uh, the, the question i would ask some of them if, if someone from seattle were to move to my neighborhood i'd say like how did how, how did you vote like what, what what made you leave and and if if there's a if they're if they're basically because what what i've always seen is people say i voted for this person but i didn't think that this policy was going to happen or i didn't think it was going to result in this this uh this activity it result in the the problems that it's created, and I'm thinking this is why demo this is the this is the problem with the democratic process where uh, a half wit can vote. Oh, this is there the, was, there, another thing that's explored in the Pilgrim's Digress. Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. There was someone there was someone oh, on Twitter ahead. like a month ago who was like suddenly suddenly frankly like, oh my god, I just found out that Joe Biden supports another lockdown. If I had known that, I would have never voted for him. And it's like. You know, oh, we've yeah. been saying yeah. Naomi, he was considering Wolf, that yeah. for months. <laughs> I'm amazed. I, I'm genuinely amazed at the level of uh, ignorance of of the rank and file voter who who like you can go to someone's website and literally look up their views on something, and people find it shocking that they believe that. And uh, this is why I, I just, as I explore in the Pilgrim's Digress, you know, they it it's a government where. Only a few people can vote. What was actually interesting, I, I do have to say, is there's one scene that concerns uh, a young man protesting the voting laws. That's actually based off of a real-life incident uh, involving one of my ancestors. His name was Thomas Joy. He was a famous architect in Boston in the 1630s. He built, I think, their first uh, meeting house, but he got put in the stocks by Governor Winthrop because he was protesting a uh, one of their... Uh, the, 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 I think it was church Paul. He, he wanted non church members to be able to vote on, on government stuff. And I, I can't remember exactly what got him put in the stocks, but he eventually agreed to like, you know, not recant, but, uh, just shut up. Apologize. Yeah. Just shut. Yeah. He had, a, he ended up moving away for a little bit, but he came back, um, 
uh, uh, as a result of that because he built some of their some of their places. But that was the the interesting thing about. Here's another interesting thought that I really didn't explore too much in this book, but it I have thought about it. Is you know you're talking about Californians moving to places. We look back on societies, you know, like early New England period or or the colonial period where you had. Uh, where, where people got ostracized, they got shunned, they got kicked out of the community. Uh, did they always deserve it? We, that, it? That is a legitimate debate, but that gets at the issue of why you remove people from your communities. You, you remove them because they, their presence there is a problem. And this is where a lot of the liberty lovers out there would, would freak out. But I would say, what do you do when someone whose politics are destructive to everything you care about move into your neighborhood and we live in a in a in a uh, I, I, a democracy, if we just want to call it that, where they can vote. Like voting is politics is violence. We just don't call, use that word. Voting is a form of violence. We just don't think of it that way. So when someone's using uh, is able to vote, they're able to put into an effect their beliefs that are destructive to everything that you care about, uh, whether it's in the community or whether it's just the way of life. So how do you deal with that person? Like the ostracizing and shy. I think at some point we're going to see that in some form. It's probably not going to be overt or explicit, but you're going to have communities where if they know that you're from an area that's like Seattle or you're from Minneapolis, they're people are just, the policy will just be to shun that person. You don't talk to them, you don't associate with them, um, because that's actually one of the worst things that can happen to people is just where you're completely ignored. Oh, within your own community. It's funny. This this uh, a few months ago we had on another one of our authors, David Lowry, uh, author of Bluff City, which you can buy from Terror House Press. Um, he he lives in Japan. You know, he's married to a Japanese woman, and he discussed an example of uh, someone he knew who had tried to move to a Japanese woman who tried to move to a, a rural Japanese village, and she ended up moving out because she was so viciously shunned by the uh, the locals. Uh, they. You know, uh, they you know, they re- they refused to pick up her garbage. The local garbage men, you know, the auto uh, the local auto shop refused to work on her car. You know, no one would talk to her, so she just moved back, frustrated. Right. I that's and that's where it gets a lot of people. on I think that that's also the within. I don't want to say libertarian philosophy, but I'd say with a lot of uh, people who are attracted to libertarianism is the the idea that I get to do whatever I want and nobody gets to tell me what to do, but that. Then that that comes up against the fact that other people get to do what they want to do, and they don't have to associate with you. They don't have to talk to you. They don't have to, uh, uh, you know, perform like the concept of freedom of association. And so this is where I've I've always found it interesting to see people uh, within the Libertarian Party. I would say more more so than anything else. But that uh, contradiction in thinking of you know live and let live, but you need to accept what I you can't judge me. <laughs> Or something like that. I think that that's, uh, that's, I, I had that stuff in mind when I was working on this book, like the, the moral arguments that people would make for, uh, for or against the idea, all these different ideas. And it ultimately comes down to one of the lines that Amos says in the book where his, his son asks him, like, what do you think of theocracy? And his, and Amos replies, well, what's the alternative? <laughs> it's, it's always a question of what's the alternative. It's always a question of what's the alternative. Uh, and that's a, a thing that people also seem to just not get into their thick skulls is that life is about choices about real choices not a you know we, we a lot of people like to play dungeon master uh, with with reality they like to pretend oh we'll just pretend like this isn't going on and we're going to pretend this is going on here and then now we can we you get to cho- now we can make moral choices 
Uh, no, that actual choices that we have yeah, with what's going on. Yeah, that's not how it works. You have to deal with reality as it is. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't sit around playing, uh, p- trying to uh, apply your game of uh, Europa Universalis Four to the real to the real world. You have to work within reality. Right, and uh, that's where uh, also those type of people are, are just. I've learned to not really discuss stuff with them anymore because they they're they're very adamant about what they think, but they also don't. They're not the kind of people who may have to make. Uh, they're they're not leaders because leadership is about making hard life choices. It's about having to make decisions, and the people who live in that world will never would never be able to run anything. I mean, these aren't leaders. That that's another thing is that the world is run by those who show up. The, the a lot of people who have an opinion will not show up. So they're not relevant to the discussion. They want to have an opinion, but they're not. They had. There's nothing. Uh, the world, the, the 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 country is run by those who run for office and by those who are elected. And so, the the, the people want to live in this world of well, what if nobody showed up for the elections, or what if nobody uh, got involved in politics? Or I was like, yeah, what if we all you know had forty acres in a in a uh, a BMW, right? Or, or something. They just they don't they they always envision this world that just doesn't that has no real life application. It also ignores history where they say. They, they they think that that something happening or predicting that something's going to happen, and that's another thing I want to say about this novel. I'm not advocating theocracy in this book. I'm just pointing out this is how like I'm raising questions about our society today and raising whether you know people say, well, we need separation of church and state. Well, explain to me how we are not currently living under a theocracy under a different name, and also this is how you create the context for a traditional theocracy to come about, and and. Like we're, we we we've already created the the moral basis for that, so it's it's almost like people. They, it goes back to they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have all these. They want to engage in all this behavior, but not have the consequences of the fallout. Oh yeah, they they they're not they're not expecting any kind of blowback. You know that whole inevitable the wrong side of history. That's 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 one of their favorite phrases. The wrong yeah. side of history, as if history yeah. only ever goes in one direction. It, the thing about history, it kind of goes back to like Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Uh, a lot of people will talk about how Caesar destroyed the Republic, and I just roll my eyes and think you clearly have not read anything about the prior history where to be in the the, the Roman army you had to own property, and that was causing problems. Like they, 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 there was um, the. The, the amount of slavery that was going on, um, how how adding commoners who didn't own property into the Roman army changed how its loyalties were based. Uh, the, the just the the lack of um, of traditional classical virtues that had degraded it to the point where the, the republic was already dead when Caesar cro- you know crossed that that river. It was it was already dead in all but name, and he was just giving it the final death blow. So this is an example where people don't understand someone something that's driving history and something and someone who is a part of it um you know another not to get too much into uh, religious stuff but it's also i'd say with martin luther you know do people see him as causing the reformation or merely the catalyst for it um if people are looking at the context of it that's another area where uh, and i'm trying to think of another example of of where someone's dry someone's not a driving force they're a catalyst for the conditions that are already occurring. Yeah, but it's, I, it, it's that's like, where it's like how Sumitri Devi Devi came up with the idea of men in time, men above time, and men against time. Right, right. And then there's uh, then there's John McClane. You know, 
the wrong guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, we've, we've been going for a while. I think this is, I think this is a good place to kind of close out the show. Um, TJ, any, anything else you want to add? Uh, just, uh, glad to see this book coming out and, and, uh, you know, thanks to Terra House for, for publishing it and great job, Matt on the, uh, uh, Matt Lawrence on the cover art. It's, uh, it's, it gets a lot at the, at the, the kind of the, the themes that are explored in the book. Um, if people are interested in uh, other of my work, they can go to tjmartinell.com. That's going to have links to all my other stuff. Yeah, I'll put all the links in the description. Yeah, go check out tjmartinell.com. He's on Twitter. Um, and buy The Pilgrim's Digress. It'll be out uh, on Christmas Day, uh, December 25th. Um, it'll be on sale for uh, 40% off, I believe. That's going to be the sale. Uh, you'll find out more about it then. Uh, additionally, all of Terror House's books are going to be on sale uh, for the Christmas season. We're, we're going to be spreading Christmas cheer. Um, so if you want to pick up uh, any one of our other books um, – um, you know, it'll be a great time. It'll be a great time to do so. But check out the Pilgrim's Digress and all of our other works at uh, TerrorHousePress.com. If you want to find my work, of course, it's uh, Matt. For- my website is MattForney.com, and all the links will be in the description as well as well Bryden's uh, links. You know, he couldn't join us for the show, but you know, he's he's with us in spirit all all the same. And that'll do it for this episode of Terror House Radio. You can check in every day at Terror House Magazine, TerrorHouseMag.com for our latest uh, publications. Our books are at Terror House Press at TerrorHousePress.com. Social media links in the description. And don't forget that you can always check out past episodes of Terror House Radio at TerrorHouseRadio.com. Terror House Radio is produced by Bryden Proctor and presented by Jugs. Intro music by Meme Extremist, Illegitimate non Coverondum. Don't let the bastards grind you down. I'm Matt Forney with TJ Martinell. And we are out.